0: Investors Chronicle.
1: Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 1st of February, as we record. January is finally behind us. And the new month is an auspicious one because it marks the publication of our biggest supplement of the year. It's the FTSE 350 issue, 40 pages running the rule over the companies in the FTSE 100 and the 250. Today, we're going to weave some of that discussion into our usual results analysis, starting with GSK's full-year figures and moving on to a brief chat about other FTSE Pharma players. Then we will turn to the US. January was another runaway month for some AI-focused stocks, notwithstanding the cooling effect of Jerome Powell's words last night. But there was less positive news from Alphabet and some mixed updates elsewhere. We will discuss the latest news from The Magnificent Seven later in the show. We'll also look at a couple of UK food and drinks players who've delivered the goods this month. That's Premier Foods and AG Barr. And to wrap up, we'll have a quick look at companies that are benefiting from the rise of regulation and compliance and fun things like that. Joining me to discuss all of this are Mark Robinson. Hi, Dan. Good to be back. Good to have you, Mark. Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. Jennifer Johnson. Hi, Dan. And over the line, Arthur Sans. Hi, hey Dan. Hi, Arthur. And we'll begin with GSK because they had the full year results out uh, yesterday Uh, For years now, there's been a lot of concern about its pipeline and more recently about litigation in relation to the Zantac heartburn drug. Uh, We'll get to that. But the results themselves, Jen, look healthy enough.
0: Yeah, so the results were really pretty positive and they definitely show that GSK is moving in the right direction in terms of growing both its earnings and its drug pipeline. Um, The vaccines division was the real standout. Revenue is up 25%. That's largely thanks to Arexv, which is its new vaccine against the RSV respiratory virus. The jab is currently only available in the US and only for people over the age of 60. Yet it's still managed uh, to record over a billion in sales since it launched in the third quarter of 2023. So it's going to roll out to other jurisdictions shortly, likely to be approved for use in younger people. So you can see that the kind of growth potential there is really quite significant. The other thing to highlight is the Group Shingles vaccine, Shingrix, which made $3.4 billion in 2023, which was a 17% improvement on the prior year. Its HIV franchise is another big revenue contributor. Uh, sales there were up 13%, six percent 4 billion. So in short, this is looking like an increasingly well-diversified company with some genuine growth prospects. And that wasn't necessarily the case five years ago.
1: And it also took the opportunity to set some long-term, in some cases, very long-term growth targets as well. What, what were they?
0: I guess it. the first thing to know is it's kind of one of the quirks of the, the pharmaceutical industry that companies are able to predict what sales might look like in five or 10 years with a reasonable degree of certainty. This is especially true for GSK, given it has a number of treatments for chronic illnesses like HIV. Demand for HIV drugs is pretty fixed and predictable. There's good data on how many people contract the virus every year and patients stay on medications for life. Uh, There's also good data on how many people are hospitalised with something like RSV every year and how many people are at risk for severe disease. So pharma companies also know Uh, along with all of this kind of information about diseases, when uh, the patents for key drugs are due to expire, meaning that revenue will fall drastically um, as generic competitors enter the market. So in 2021, GSK issued both a five-year and a 10-year outlook, which is something that obviously not a lot of companies in other sectors can do. And it upgraded both of those in its 2023 results, which were uh, released this week. By 2031, GSK now expects to achieve sales of more than 38 billion. This is an increase of 5 billion compared to the target that it's set in 2021. So it's clearly a company that that is feeling confident and feeling bullish for the first time in a while.
1: The downside, and this is something we've spoken about before, because it has lingered over the shares, as I said, for a little while, is the this Zantac litigation, the... Uh, um, Legal cases relating to the uh, allegation that this heartburn drug from the 90s caused cancer in some uh, cases. We've been quite positive on GSK for a while. When you look at the share price uh, in response to ostensibly good figures and pretty bullish long term targets, it does seem like, doesn't it, that you can see some of this concern in there. Yesterday, there wasn't really a move on these numbers until the middle of the day. It was up a couple of percent. Um, it's up another couple of percent now today on some small zantac news and there is so it does seem that that concern about how much they'd have to pay in this litigation is holding them back a bit however some are hopeful for a resolution in the first half of this year
0: yeah and it's it is fair to say that the share price reactions to recent results have seemed out of step with the reality of the numbers um and there are actually two things conceivably holding GSK back at the moment. Um, the lesser factor, I think, is that one of its key HIV drugs is due to go off patent worldwide by the end of the decade, Given, though, that there's significant momentum elsewhere in the portfolio, this probably isn't going to be a huge drag on earnings or profits. The company actually said it expects operating margins to be broadly stable around the time period that the drug is is going off patent. So investors shouldn't be overly worried there. Um, the key issue, as you said, Dan, really seems to be this ongoing litigation around Zantac in the U.S., There were something like 80,000 lawsuits filed in total alleging that patients who use the drug developed various forms of cancer. Some of these lawsuits have now been dismissed at the federal level and there have been some settlements made with plaintiffs in California with the latest one um, being announced today. That means most of the remaining cases are now in the state of Delaware, where a judge is due to decide fairly imminently whether the evidence linking Zantac to cancer is admissible. If it is, some or all of the cases could proceed to trial, which is the outcome GSK is most keen to avoid. Uh, it definitely seems that the company is, is more, much more eager to, to settle with plaintiffs than it is to try and take them on in courts because... Obviously, there are reputational things on the line when you go to trial. It's it very costly. And various analysts have sort of um, issued predictions for what they think the kind of ultimate liability for GSK is going to be. And it's a little bit of a take it with a grain of salt at the moment, uh, given that there's there's still some uncertainty around it all. Um, but for what it's worth, uh, Jeffrey said they envisage GSK reaching a global settlement in the first half of this year for its share of liability because there are other companies who made drugs that are chemically identical to to Zantac um, and the liability estimate is between two billion and three and a half billion so it's significant but conceivably if that were to be announced uh, shares could still rise because at least then you've got this um, tremendous uncertainty is kind of Resolved, And I think it's not shareholders and investors aren't helped by the fact that these cases can become very complicated. You will have some that are being heard um, by federal judges. You'll have some that are being heard by state judges. Each state looks upon these particular kind of lawsuits and the scientific evidence surrounding them a little bit differently. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not a black and white or kind of easy thing for shareholders to digest. But I would say things have moved clearly in a positive Um, direction and there's not a lot of reason to believe that that you know GSK is going to get dragged through the courts uh, and that shareholders really have a lot to fear but it is something to keep an eye on.
1: Alex what are your views on GSK?
2: Well I I suppose it was an interesting situation because they uh, maybe one of the legacies of um, the pandemic was that you know despite I suppose they've got a really big reputation in in uh in vaccines and you know obviously the Shingrix Shing, I can't say it either the, Shing, <laughs> the Shingrix uh vaccine is you know has gone great guns but you know GSK missed out on the, on the I suppose the blockbuster potential for launching a a, a vaccine when everyone needed one uh, at least ahead of ahead of its rivals. So maybe there was a bit of a depression in the you know in sentiment towards the company then and then I suppose since then maybe the narrative has moved on but we've had the Zantac overhang. So underneath all of that you still have you know you still have a a, a kind of a science powerhouse here trading at uh, you know as, as Jen mentioned about Sort of 10 times earnings and what is clear from you know this um this week's announcement is that management are are bullish about the long-term prospects even if you know the changes to to guidance you know a a, a, a percentage point of adjusted operating margin here and two percentage points of, of uh, average sales growth here you feel really kind of at the margins you know they're they're sounding confident and I suppose the better news, arguably for lots of GSK shareholders, is that dividend, which came in quite um, a way ahead of consensus at 16p, the quarterly dividend that is very well covered, despite all these, you know, these other claims on on cash. So, it, you know, it seems like now the narrative with GSK is there's a strong long-term defensive investment case trapped under the latest um, sort of bout of of, of pessimism. Um but yes, you know, signs are, are maybe sort of ticking in the right direction. I don't know if if we can, you know, come on to this the comparison always there with AstraZeneca maybe looks a little bit more favorable.
1: Mm. Well I was gonna come on to AstraZeneca. Uh the dividend's a good point as well, as you say, you know, the there's still a decent payout there as well. But Jen, is there the potential turning here to our FTSE through fifty section where we look at the entire pharma sector? In recent years, it's been very much a case of AstraZeneca being the UK powerhouse, GSK being the laggard, at least share price-wise. Uh, is there potential for that to reverse? There are some signs that things are uh, a bit trickier for AstraZeneca now as well. Uh, and also just to, to cover off another FTSE uh, pharmaceutical company, Indivior, which has had its own legal issues, to say the least, but they too may be solved now. So can we say a bit about both of those companies?
0: Yeah, so with AstraZeneca... I think it might be a bit drastic to say that its fortunes are going to reverse, Mm. but it is, again, this this kind of links back to something that's happening in the US. There have been some uh, jitters recently around AstraZeneca's exposure to uh, the drug price controls that are part of the Inflation Reduction Act some of their cancer drugs, some of their kind of blockbuster drugs are are likely to be affected. The degree to which they'll be affected kind of remains to be seen. But I think the key thing really to keep in mind with any of these fears around the Inflation Reduction Act is that there is a US election coming up, which could see, uh, you know, the the legislative landscape change quite significantly, I guess is the the diplomatic way to put it. Um, So yeah, it's a kind of, it's a case of watch this space astrazeneca is still you know one of the biggest london listed companies it still has an incredible portfolio especially of oncology drugs uh and you know demand for those sorts of things really isn't going to go anywhere uh i don't think it's necessarily a case that sort of astrazeneca has to fall from grace for for gsk to ascend Mm -hmm. though that does make kind of a neat narrative um
1: that's that's just all I was looking for <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah that's um but but yeah I mean it's it's conceivable that the um, you know AstraZeneca could kind of enter a, a little bit of a, of a period of stagnation but there's a lot of there are a lot of um, factors really in play there Um I guess to turn to Indivia now, which is a company in a very different situation uh, to both GSK and AstraZeneca, which have these reasonably diversified drug portfolios. Indivio is more or less completely um, a manufacturer of treatments for opioid addiction. Those treatments are again vastly sold in the U.S. Um, there really aren't significant other um, you know regions that contribute to to earnings for Indivia. Um, It had its own legal battle that lasted several years. Um, It was an antitrust case involving one of its uh, opioid addiction treatments, Suboxone. It was alleged that the company had switched to an oral film version of Suboxone from a tablet to extend its monopoly, just as there were going to be generic competitors uh, that could enter the market to sell these lower cost pills. The, the uncertainties around the litigation might have been for Indivia. But the key thing to keep in mind is that it's a company that is not particularly well diversified. Indivia, basically, it needs to, in the longer term, to kind of reassure shareholders. It needs to diversify away from these opioid addiction treatments. It's done fairly well um, with them, obviously, because of the the scale of the epidemic, which has no real signs of abating so while Indivia might be free of its its legal woes its pipeline woes are definitely something to keep an eye on far more so than than a company like gsk
1: yeah i think as you mentioned earlier off air it is or it has been in the past trying to bring a schizophrenia drug uh, through which which could help diversify but for now it is really reliant on that uh, uh, opioid mm. focus. It was also featured in our uh, Fallen Angels uh, news piece we did this week, looking at uh, companies who've slipped from mid-cap to small-cap status because it has struggled. Some of the attraction ostensibly might be because you look at the sales of sublocate and they're still soaring. You know, I think it's 55% in, in Q3 was, was the last figure. But that in itself is down a little bit on Q2. So there is some uncertainty over that rollout and you know, whether they can maintain that given it is their one string to their bow currently. So, yeah, as you say, something to be aware of there. Let's turn to the US itself now, though, and some of the companies listed over there, uh, because while we are now in February, January was another gangbuster month, certainly for the likes of NVIDIA. We have had a few earnings reports in the last few days, though, of course, and they've been a bit more mixed, thinking of Alphabet in particular. But, Arthur, we'll come to you... You know, the performance at the start of this year certainly has been as it was last year, really. It's been very much about AI, maybe a bit more about the semiconductor cycle changing as well and has been pretty good news on the whole for the Magnificent Seven or certainly the AI-focused cohort there.
3: Yeah, it has. I think it's probably been a little bit of a case of what was driving the company's valuations last year as well, which is a combination of the interest rate environment so um inflation getting under control and uh rate expectations falling uh coupled with some hype around ai and the subsequent demand for all of the semiconductors that all these cloud computer companies are buying up um but as you said yeah we've had some so i think um we had some semiconductor results in the previous weeks um some of the international ones like asml which is the makes the photoligraphy machines and TSMC, which is the big Taiwanese manufacturer. And they. And then in the last couple of days, we've had sort of the big U.S. software companies, so Microsoft and Alphabet, and then today we have Amazon and Meta. So it's sort of a case of, we know that people are buying loads of hardware. Investors are now curious to see whether the software side, so is actually gonna start generating some earnings for these companies because at some point, the AI needs to be adopted by enterprises and then hopefully eventually, or from in their perspective, consumers. So um, the market's now looking to see whether there's any like sort of real earnings being generated rather than just looking at the giant CapEx figures, which which was kind of the story of last year, which was these companies trying to position themselves for this AI cycle.
1: Hmm. nonetheless i am going to turn straight to those uh, giant capex figures because in microsoft results maybe alphabet to an extent as well but there was some sign that you know the amount the sheer amount they are investing could be starting to or could in future weigh on earnings a little bit more how did you read the both the microsoft and the alphabet results the latter obviously more affected by an advertising slowdown as well
3: you know, on the capex point it actually it's sort of, I feel that the narrative might be changing slightly. I think last year, the big CapEx numbers were generally viewed as a good thing because people were aware that for the companies to be leaders in AI, they needed to have loads and loads of graphics processing units, um, which are the chips that NVIDIA makes, which is why NVIDIA's um, earnings have gone up so much. And there was a sort of an arms race sense where they were buying as many as they could get their hands on and doing it as quickly as possible. And investors sort of would look at that CapEx figure and if the CapEx figure was big, they'd see it as a sort of precursor to that company being a leader. So Microsoft, Google, Meta, Amazon have all been spending billions and billions on it. This was the first set of results. And I was reading through the analyst notes before this call and then Alphabet's share price was down. Six or seven percent on the day, and the analysts were trying to offer up reasons for it, even though they beat expectations on revenue and um profit. And one of the reasons was, oh, their capex figure was bigger than expected. It was up fifty percent ish year on year. Um, the same with Microsoft and their cash flow. Alphabet's cash flow was down a lot, partly because they had this big tax bill. But even without a tax bill, it would have been down. Because of the CapEx investment from the same period last year, despite its profits being up um in uh what so yeah, Alphabet's operating profit was up 27%. Yeah, it's um cash flow dropped because of the big CapEx expenditure. So now there's this sort of concern: oh, actually, are they spending way too much on CapEx? Are they gonna get the returns we expect? And is this AI thing just gonna be insanely expensive for all of these companies to Adopt so that feels too, and then, and then the other thing about Alphabet was that they then said the analysts were then concerned about the advertising revenue figures being below expectations, but the fact that it beat revenue expectations, even though advertising was weaker than expected, just means that cloud was stronger than expected, and people. We're saying, oh, we really want to see cloud revenue do well, because that's an indication of that's like the growth business. And that's the indication of AI. So I don't know, I, it feels like, I guess with Alphabet in particular, there's a fear that the AI thing is going to be really, really expensive. And actually what made Alphabet a really great business was that it had an advertising monopoly and maybe investors are getting a little bit more cold feet about the cost that's going to be associated with the, the whole AI um, process. I suppose these are the consequences sometimes of
1: being, being priced for perfection or at least the uh, the perception that that is the case. Because in some cases, you know, there are still uh, valuation cases to be made. We did include NVIDIA in our Ideas of the Year again uh, this year, having uh, tipped it right at the end of 2022. So can we say a bit about, maybe Alex, I'll turn to you for your sort of thoughts on... The the opening of twenty twenty four for the for the magnificent seven or for the uh, the big AI the big tech stocks in particular I keep uh, qualifying that because Tesla has had like, quite a bad start to the year but obviously it is quite different from you know the tech giants themselves how do you view the whole thing
2: Yeah well, I think on that point we we're, we're certainly seeing a bit of bifurcation within the this magnificent seven grouping and inevitably it's the latest acronym that we've seen. Countless inter- iterations o- of over mm. the last decade, and this may be the time to retire it because, you know, Tesla down twenty five percent. You're not allowed to do that, really, as a as a magnificent stock, are you? In, a, in in the course of a month.
1: Well, I did see someone make the good point recently that uh, in the. Film the Magnificent Seven, and indeed the Seven Samurai, in which it was based. Uh, I think three—I oh, can't remember—three
2: or four ended up dead. Okay, so, so maybe the analogy could <laughs> carry on. Anyway, sorry. No, no, um, that perfectly writes features for the end of the year, I suppose. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, we you know, but even within the grouping, you've got uh, you know, as, as Arthur really you know, clearly outlined there, you've got the the way some some hardware providers. Well, let's look at N- Nvidia, especially. Um, have really run away with things because they are selling to the rest of the grouping. Stocks like Apple. I mean, they Apple's basically a wash so far this year, um, and they were up a mere forty-eight percent last year, um, which you know doubled the S and P five hundred. But within the grouping, that was the that was the smallest gain, partly because it was from a lower base. Twenty twenty-two being a brutal year for a lot of these tech stocks, but also it's just reflecting the defensive qualities and kind of slower growths. Sp- prospects of a, you know, $3 trillion company. I suppose the the biggest takeaway I've had from the last week of earnings and trying to pass what some of these, you know, the latest goings on means for for this group. And, you know, I should add the caveat that, you know, quarterly earnings, there's a lot of drama and fuss made over them, but it's it's really the long term, which obviously um, counts, is, um, I suppose, with, is, is Microsoft. So they, if we take you know sort of step back and and look at what's projected here cloud is really going to be the growth engine for them is is what people are assuming so they made 38 billion dollars here last year that's expected to climb to 86 billion dollars over four years an average compound annual growth rate of of um uh, 23 sorry that's an operating profit I mean, everyone by now is very familiar with the story, so there's lots of sensitivity to the, any sort of micro-shift in growth expectations. By contrast, I think maybe I'm just kind of reiterating a little bit what the, the point that Arthur was making here, Google doesn't really seem primed to catch up in the same way because it's it's operating from a much lower base when it comes to the cloud, uh, so it's having to invest more. And maybe, yeah, maybe Google is now more a play on consumer internet gro- growth as a story. And, you know, that's always going to grow in the decade ahead, but it's not going to grow at the same clip as the technology infrastructure providers, owners like Microsoft and the, their hardware um, suppliers. So, yeah, I mean, Microsoft, it, it has been looking a little ahead of its recent trading multiple 30 times earnings that, yeah, you talked about perfect pricing, probably, but it has continually justified that. And um, it still seems of the pack, the one with the clearest growth story, obviously, NVIDIA is just tearing away at the moment, but how sustainable those earnings are, uh, you, you know, you might question in sort of 25, uh, 2025, 2026 um, onwards. So, um. Yeah, I mean, so much to unpack, but um, Microsoft still seems pretty strong.
1: Arthur, just to wrap up on this section, as you said, we do have Amazon and Meta and Apple reporting later today. By the time this podcast goes out, everyone will know those uh, figures. But, but what's your sense of uh, of how they might fare or how they're faring currently, regardless of quarterly earnings?
3: Well, they're also say as. Kind of to Alex's point again, where it's like we, we bunch them together. Yeah. They're all very different kinds of companies with some sectors of overlap. So Amazon's like a split story where obviously it's got the cloud computing bit of the story. Amazon's the market leader. It's by far the biggest and was the first to get into cloud computing, but is now growing the slowest. Azure, which was Microsoft's cloud, um, accelerated to 30% annual growth from last quarter thanks to six per that they said six percentage points of growth from AI up from three percentage points of growth from AI last quarter. So they're getting quite a good AI tailwind for their cloud computing business. Um, whereas I then mean, Google's growing at was it 26% annually, which is down from 37% annually this same quarter last year. And Amazon was down in the low teens, although growing from a much larger base. So I think people will be hoping and are expecting Amazon's Cloud computing growth to start accelerating back up again, similar to what's happened at Microsoft. And then on the other side, they've invested, they invested loads in their um logistics business. And UPS and FedEx just had some pretty bad results. In part, people think because they're losing a lot of business to Amazon. And there's a hope, I guess, from, from Amazon investors that Amazon's going to start showing that it's become very profitable and it's very more profitable in its logistics business and third-party logistics. They're doing shipping for other people. So that's like, when you're comparing these stocks, it's like, oh yeah, well, Amazon's also a ginormous logistics business, which is like nothing, which is completely different to all of the other magnificent seven. Um, And then Meta is kind of similar to Google. They just both make almost all of their money from advertising. And then Mark Zuckerberg goes off and says that he's also trying to build... Artificial general intelligence, but that's not going to be making them any money. Yeah, that's just going to come up in ginormous CapEx figures, like the same with Google and uh, Microsoft. And then they'll have lost loads of money with their headsets again. So um, I guess that's what we can look forward to. But in general, I think I was being a bit negative, but the results were generally pretty good. Like these companies are growing double digits. Microsoft's almost top-line growth at 20%, and it's a $3 trillion company and its forecasting operating margins to expand one or two percentage points this year, um, despite all of this investment. So it may be, and as Alex said, the earnings results can be a lot of drama. And my takeaway is I'm a little bit shocked at how much share prices can move based on pretty short term information, particularly with Google. So. And generally, they continue to perform pretty well. Maybe it was just because the share prices, as you said, had run up so much in the last year that people wanted to take profits and anything that was looked weak at all was an opportunity to sell. But things will probably keep going in the way they've been going for the last two decades with these monopolies for a little bit.
4: I, I, I tend to think it, uh, at some point in the future as well, when you look at the uh, commercial relationship um, between uh, Microsoft Uh, Alphabet and indeed uh, IBM to a a certain extent it's going to feed into that age old debate about first mover advantage as well but this will only become uh, clear over time
1: Mm. Well Mark you have been sitting patiently until now uh, waiting for your time and that time has come because we're going to talk about uh, AG Bar and a little bit on Premier Foods now. Uh, AG Bar figures uh, seemed again like the recurring theme today pretty good.
4: Yeah yeah, definitely. Um, the management did point out that there were some um, uh, barriers emerged during the latter part of the summer. It wasn't uh, terribly good in terms of weather conditions for sales, apparently. Although, what you know, what difference the weather makes when you're drinking Iron Brew is uh, is lost on me. But um, yes, we should say AG Bar, for those who don't know the Iron Brew and general
1: soft drink manufacturer.
4: Well, yes, uh, and beyond its sort of flagship beverage as well. It's the influence of uh, m over the last uh, year or so, which has provided a real uh, boost for the, co- the company itself. Uh, it took on three new subsidiaries at the end of uh, 2022. And of those, um, perhaps the most impressive results have come from uh, Mama Foods, which is a producer of oat-based uh, alternatives to dairy products, the type of things that you find increasingly in uh, in coffee shops as well. And sales there are up or remain in uh, double-digit levels at the moment, which has been really good for the company. But even when you take away uh, the influence of that uh, m and organic sales are up uh, by 7.6% during the period. Profits are looking a little bit better as well, um, not least because while uh, cost pressures are Still in evidence, they've they've subsided quite a bit uh, from the the prior year figures too. So uh, on the broker research that I looked at this morning, they said that it's improved uh, chances for near to medium term proper upgrades. So it was um, it was a generally favourable result. The uh, the company separately announced that uh, Ewan Sutherland, an ex-Saga boss, has been promoted as uh, chief executive, and uh, he starts at the beginning of May there. And he's coming in at a, a decent time for the company as well. More of the manufacturing has been brought in in-house. It's a more diversified range now. And it, it's it's slightly ironic in the fact that they have brought in Mama Foods as well, because I mean, AG Bar was never synonymous with the health food side of that market. But it's been you know, a, a positive outcome, I think. Interesting shift for the chief executive going from Saga
1: to uh, to well, Iron Brew. Yes, yeah. but, uh, perhaps that will show the uh, transferability of some of uh, their skills. The shares have had some decent momentum in recent weeks as well. Um, how do you see the the, sort of the valuation, the prospects there?
4: Uh, I had a look at that, and um, I, I think uh, I think the forward rating was uh, 17 times consensus earnings, which uh, is. Um, You know, it doesn't scream value, but you look at it from a a historical perspective and uh, it's actually, it's not a bad entry point uh, at the moment. That sort of surprised me a little bit, Um, but particularly given those uh, medium term upgrades of the chance of those have increased. So I think, you know, it's not an unreasonable entry point at the present time. Well, AG Bar is part of our FTSE 350 review,
1: as you'd expect, and as is another company, Premier Foods, which has also done very well recently and over the last three, six months really as well. It too had a trading update out recently and raised guidance a few months ago. Things looking pretty strong there. This is the the Mr. Kipling maker. Uh, Alex, I'll turn back to you maybe for some thoughts on Premier Foods because it's turned up in a couple of momentum screens as well recently.
2: It has, yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose the momentum here a little bit stronger than um, AG Barb. That's likely a function of um, uh, Premier Foods' balance sheet, which is, I mean, AG Barb pretty negligible um, debt, whereas Premier, you know, they've got a bit of debt on the balance sheet. So, you know, the I suppose the 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 pivot in interest rate policy um, backdrop we've seen over the uh, you know over the last four months has been. Uh, probably more beneficial to them but you know focusing on the on on what they do i mean they're just they're just a very very solid company and they you know was obviously went through a fair bit of turmoil like every other food manufacturer in the last couple of years of how you're balancing price with cost inflation that has settled a little bit now but their brands that they have and the markets they're in you know uh, you know remain pretty solid. I mean that, you know, it's not just um Mr Kipling They sort of distribute Cadbury's cakes. They, they're in, you know, Oxo, Bisto, Paxo. So they had a very good Christmas there apparently, it's their best ever. You know, just very solid brands, reliable sales, but you know, they've got options to pivot into new markets and product lines, I suppose a little bit how, you know, the, the, in the way that AG Bar has has done successfully with their their m They're also looking, you know, a, a abroad and their their growth in the US in particular has been has been pretty solid. So, you know, if you're able to crack that um food market, then that's, you know, presumably happy days. I don't know if it's all of their products. I don't know if Angel Delight is making a um a, a, a sort of a yeah a, a big splash in the US. But um I think Sharwood's Shaward sauce as they're saying i think mr kipling is also finding some aisle space yeah. dan you're also a fan aren't you of, of premier foods you yeah. highlighted them as the FTSE 350
1: so yeah i did the uh the food producers FTSE 350 section and, and they were they were the pick i mean they've got there are some immediately go to caveat my own uh confidence because they, <laughs> you know they have made a couple of acquisitions uh in the past uh, year or a couple of years which are their first for a decade and a half really, I think there is the that Spice Taylor brand, uh, a breakfast brand called Fuel Ten UK, which sounds like a different kind of breakfast to the kind I of eat, but uh, you know, it's quite popular, I imagine, those kind of things nowadays. So so they will have to bed those in. Uh that said, you know, the the expansion of those and the internationally seems to be going well so far. It's got it's also been I think what it's done quite well as well is it's been able to take market share at the same time as balancing this volume price uh you know conundrum, which, as you say, has been affecting most food producers in recent recent times, given the inflationary increases, you know, I think it helps that it's fairly keenly priced still nonetheless inflationary costs input costs are now falling as well, so you know there's a margin opportunity there for those companies. I think I'm sure retailers and the likes of us would like to see some prices fall but but nonetheless, there's some opportunity there from the business side. I think also that when you consider. General economic trends, you know, those kind of foods are the kinds that may benefit this year if people do eat in a bit more. You know, it's one of those companies in that space which can benefit from at-home dining. So so there are some some positive strands to the business, certainly, and and that expansion so far is going quite well. We should now turn, though, because time is running quite short. That was a very brief section on the food producers, but we're going to turn to regulation, Mark, because you've written another piece this week on Companies taking advantage of regulation and compliance, and the the growth of these issues as uh, something that businesses and all of us must pay attention to.
4: Yes, um, I, re- I regret to say that it. it's a certainly a, a quite a dry piece as well. But I just thought it's, I, I just you've thought, sold it really well to the listeners. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, if you could spare a moment. <laughs> Uh,
1: I, I, to, I, I, to, to hype it up a bit, you did pick out three companies that will be particular beneficiaries or are doing quite well. Absolutely, and one. We'll only talk about one of them, maybe just to uh, you know try and try and create some uh, incentive to have a look at the uh, the piece.
4: Yeah, probably I didn't kick it off in the best manner possible, but um, I, I got I got the idea of this originally when I, um, a couple of years ago uh, when um, uh, the FCA uh, effectively made Provident Financial change there. Uh, their business model and the, the subsequent entry Vanquist bank uh, banking was forced to sell its um, personal uh, finance arm as well. And so it just struck me as being sort of emblematic of uh, what's been happening in the regulation compliance market in recent years. You know, we've seen a, uh, a real expansion in the number of uh, regulatory bodies and plus the uh, compliance standards that companies are being forced to follow. And this is Partly due to the influence of um, supernatural bodies like the EU, but also the um, OECD and uh, the modern version of, uh, or the reform version of NAFTA, which is the USMCA. But you combine that with the ever tightening standards linked to ESG uh, and corporate governance as well, and it creates a real minefield uh, for companies. But by the same token, for specialists in the field, it provides opportunities too, and too often I think companies when you look at a uh, report you know and they and they and companies refer to compliance costs that's seen in a, a negative but uh, there is a school of thought which says that it's actually an investment in the business as well and it's hard to uh, go beyond that view as well when you when you just look at the um, the, the fact that there are so many international organizations that have uh, are putting forth these measures now. I mean, it's, it's most prominent, of course, within the financial services sector and the banking sector. And uh, bodies like the Prudential Regulation Authority, they've got their work cut out for them now um, in relation to uh, public markets. And we've seen a number of uh, reforms post-Brexit too, which uh, are providing opportunities. Uh, the companies that I, I, I picked out are experience uh, with The subheading there is cash through complexity, and uh, obviously they're uh, they're more synonymous with their uh, credit uh, checking, their core services there. But increasingly, the, the fastest growing part of their business is the uh, B2B aspect, which uh, en- enables companies to keep on top of their compliance uh, obligations. I uh, also looked at Halma, which is. Uh, a more ob- obvious example in many ways because obviously the uh, proliferation that we've seen in health and safety regulations and uh, that certainly came to the fore uh, because of uh, uh, the Grenfell Tower disaster as well. And uh, the last company I look at as well is uh, Intertech uh, and there's other uh, points there like certification services that they they deal in. And, and that is a reflection really of the impact of uh, Globalisation and the need to um, regulate uh, trading standards internationally. So, it's. I think it's. I think it's uh, an area which is appreciated uh, by our readers and listeners. But I. I think. Uh, I don't. I don't think that there's much chance of uh, we're going to see a, a bonfire, which is a word that politicians like to use in relation to regulatory affairs although the upcoming us uh, uh, election we we may see uh, changes there because obviously uh, uh, donald trump is is one for uh, simplifying matters for business but i i think it's i think it's just the growth sector of the economy and one worth uh, we well worth looking at
1: well you have named all three companies there so You know, if people are interested in
4: those, they can find out more in the piece. They Uh, should be interested. It's it's dry, but in a purely academic sense.
1: And sometimes, you know, that's where the best investment opportunities come from. And as you point out with Experian, people may be overlooking that side of the business.
4: I I should really uh, remember to uh, sell the sizzle and not the steak. Well, indeed. Uh, As I say, that is uh, in the magazine
1: this week and online, uh, covering those three companies, who are Experian, Intertech and Halmer. Halmer have a very uh, interesting head office i recently discovered in Amersham. In a, oh really a lovely uh, old brewery or it's, at least it's next to there oh. so i don't know maybe that's good for productivity of employees because it's uh, very nice that's yes. all i can contribute on a, on halma i'm afraid well, anyway. well i
4: think the I, ic should consider a, a similar switch well yeah
1: hope springs eternal <laughs> anyway on that note uh, we have reached the end of the show thank you very much to everyone for joining me thank you to mark to Alex, to Jen, to Arthur for getting up at 7 a.m. New York time and joining us, and to our producer, Mariette Thorpe. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next time with another Companies and Markets show.